0: Hey everyone, you're about to hear one of our excellent episodes handpicked from the archives. Why? Because we're on a working production break. You know how sometimes you'd get the day off from school, but your teachers still had to go in and prepare lesson plans or whatever it was they were doing? Well, this is like that. So for now, enjoy the fruits of our past labor, and know that we are working behind the scenes to keep the show going strong. This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a deep dive into why Mitch McConnell is such a bad, bad man for basically all of the reasons. Clips today come from Embedded, The David Pacman Show, The Young Turks, and The Majority Report.
1: So the way a lot of people talk about it, raising money is one of those kind of unfortunate chores that goes along with running for office. Mitch McConnell is not one of those people. He talks about money very differently. And here's a story about McConnell that should tell you exactly what I mean.
2: Back in the 1970s, he was teaching a class in political science at the University of Louisville. John Cheeves is an investigative
1: reporter with the Lexington Herald-Leader. And he heard this story from one of McConnell's students.
2: McConnell went to the front of the classroom and wrote on the chalkboard, I'm going to tell you the three things you need to succeed in politics and to build a political party. Money, money, money.
1: For someone who sees money as a key to politics, like McConnell, it was certainly helpful that he was very good at raising that money.
3: I mean, that just goes without saying He's a master at it.
1: That's Alan Simpson, a former Republican senator from Wyoming.
3: He knows how to pull all the levers. The the organ is playing, and he's not only hitting the keys, he's doing the footwork.
1: A lot of senators hate raising the money. It takes time away from the actual Senate. It requires a kind of begging. Or, as Alan Simpson puts it, it's It's disgusting. But he's been quoted as saying that when he saw McConnell fundraising, McConnell's eyes would, quote, shine like diamonds. McConnell doesn't describe fundraising as disgusting, and he's not ashamed to come right out and say exactly
4: why politicians do it. We do it because we'd like to win, because we'd like to win. There's nothing inherently wrong with with wanting to win.
1: It's not only that he thinks there's nothing wrong with it. It's that spending money on politics, in his view, is a fundamental First Amendment right. (laughs) The way McConnell sees it, money actually is speech. You can't pay for an ad or a newsletter or a pamphlet without money. So if the government limits how much can be spent on politics or who can spend it, you are also attacking the Constitution. There was one guy, a guy who saw all of this very differently from Mitch McConnell, a fellow Republican. Someone who devoted much of his career to fighting money in politics, which often meant fighting Mitch McConnell. That guy was Arizona Senator John McCain.
5: Just look at the gifts that come into our office on a daily basis. Look at it at Christmas time. Federal Express finds the Capitol to be the busiest place for them to go.
1: Here, McCain is arguing that there should be strict limits on the gifts senators could get from lobbyists. At the time, these gifts were legal.
5: I do not know any average citizen in the state of Arizona that gets gratuities or meals or whatever it is to the tune of approaching $50 a day. I just don't know any. I'm not even business executives. No one except we here in Congress. The American people want us to live like they do. McConnell eventually
1: did support some limits, But he was offended by the implication that getting gifts was somehow corrupt, and he said so.
4: It should trouble every senator to be slapped across the face with the insinuation that he or she has somehow been bought by a cheap bottle of wine at Christmas or a crab cake sandwich or an honorary plaque.
1: John McCain arrived in the Senate right around the same time as Mitch McConnell, but he went down a very different path. And it was actually because in his first term in the Senate, McCain himself was implicated in a major scandal.
3: From National Public Radio News in Washington, I'm Carl Castle. The Senate Ethics Committee begins a series of meetings today about the activities of the so-called Keating Five.
1: John McCain was one of the Keating Five, named for a corrupt businessman named Charles Keating.
4: A former savings and loan executive, now under indictment for criminal fraud.
1: Keating gave more than a million dollars to McCain and the four other senators. And in
5: return... It is alleged they intervened with federal regulators on Keating's behalf after he gave them political contributions. McCain was ultimately cleared of breaking the law
1: or violating Senate rules. But the Ethics Committee said... He exercised poor judgment. Al Cross is a longtime political reporter and columnist, and he says McCain's experience of seeing political money and corruption up close hurt his reputation and changed him.
3: McCain saw that he needed to be a crusader for campaign finance reform to help cleanse the stain that had uh, been applied to him. There's too much money
5: washing around, and this money makes good people do bad things and bad people do worse things.
3: He took this stuff I so seriously was and was so outspoken so about it. it I have to think that he had a moral yeah. imperative. One thing I can predict to you with
5: absolute certainty on this floor, there'll be more indictments, and there'll be more scandals and more indictments and more scandals and more indictments and more people go to prison until we clean up this system.
3: At the same time, McConnell was developing into the guy in the Senate Republican Caucus who was willing to defend the system of influence and uh, campaign finance that exists in Washington.
4: Where did this notion get going, that we were spending too much in campaigns?
1: Compared to what? This is one of McConnell's favorite arguments, that Americans spend more on things at the grocery store than we do on politics. He's used versions of
4: this compared to what line for literally decades. Americans spent more on potato chips than they did on politics. About what the American public spent in one year on bubblegum. Bubble bubblegum. Bubble Bottled water. Bottled water. Bottled water. Cosmetics. Cosmetics. Yogurt. Alcoholic beverages. Kibbles and bits ads. So when we talk about spending, we talk about it compared to what?
1: Most politicians do not talk so bluntly in favor of money in politics. After all, it's basically conventional wisdom that there's too much, not too little. Cross says the fact that McConnell was one of the very few senators out defending the
3: system helped him get ahead. I think McConnell saw uh, his uh, ability to defend it, his willingness to defend it, as a route to leadership that uh, his fellow Republicans would reward his efforts in that regard uh, by electing him to a leadership position. McConnell proudly says
1: that he was the spear catcher for the Republican Party on campaign finance. He was willing to stand up and fight against efforts to restrict money in politics.
6: In the continuing saga of all the disgusting and immoral and corrupt things that Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has done, he has now blocked election security uh, bills and he just so happens to be taking money from voting machine lobbyists. Nice, right? This is a separate story, by the way, from the totally swamp filling financial dealings of Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chao. And her conflicts of interest, that's going to have to be a story for another day. This is other swamp filling nonsense from Mitch McConnell. Remember, Russian hackers successfully targeted voting machines in 2016, voting systems in 2016. They're likely to do it again in 2020. Uh, Intelligence agencies uh, agree. The intelligence agencies of other countries agree. Touchscreen voting machines have no paper trail. Some have no paper trail. Which makes it impossible to verify how votes were counted, if they were counted, who they were counted for. Uh, and these electronic voting machines can make it impossible not only to find, but even to correct problems in many cases. There are ideas about how to stop this. Both Democrats and Republicans have actually proposed some of those ideas in legislation. Every single bill that has been proposed has been stonewalled by Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And of course, big surprise it just so happens that the two biggest voting machine companies have hired lobbyists at the federal level who recently have contributed to Mitch McConnell's reelection campaign for senate in Kentucky just delightful right the system we have the two companies i'm talking about are es and s and dominion voting systems between the two of them those two companies supply 80% of the country's voting machines. They have very significant lobbying operations, historically at the state level, but they've now hired federal lobbyists, ESNS hired lobbyists, Peck, Madigan Jones to lobby the house and Senate. They have significantly funded this federal lobbying spending, uh, dominion voting systems now owned by a hedge fund based in New York city also started federal lobbying this year with Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek, a different lobbying firm. Many of the lobbyists working for both of these companies have donated to Mitch McConnell's campaign and to Mitch McConnell's joint fundraising committee. So listen, can we prove that Mitch McConnell is blocking election security bills because of the donations from voting machine lobbyists? No, that's not the point, And that's by design. That's how the system is designed. Even if there isn't actual provable foul play here. This is a corrupt system that it is even legal for voting machine companies that tally election results to go and donate money to elected officials who are participating in those elections, which may be tallied by their voting machines is a sickening but legal status quo in the way things work in this country. Last segment I said we have over criminalization in the street crime world in the United States. We have under criminalization and under prosecution and under conviction and under penalization of white collar corporate and political crime in the United States. Mitch McConnell is one of the most insidious forces in American politics today and he has been for years and very successfully so for Republicans.
7: Uh, number two, he said it's designed to make it more likely the Democrats win more often. Now, does it say anything about, hey, we got to twist things or even, of course, it's not going to say twist things, but is there anything in there that puts a thumb on the scale for Democrats? No, what it does is it says we want to make it easier for everyone to vote. It doesn't say Democrats. It doesn't say like, you know what Republicans will do? They'll say, okay, we're going to take away voting areas in places more likely to vote Democratic like areas that are have students, minorities, etc., right? And we're gonna put more voting areas in areas that are rural, white, people more likely to vote for Republicans. See, that would be putting your thumb on the scale. Democrats do not do that in this bill. What they say is, we wanna make sure everybody can vote, white, black, Latino, rural, urban, it doesn't matter, right? And Mitch McConnell's like, you want people to vote? This is obviously Democrats trying to win elections. Well, thank you for your admission. That Democrats are more likely to win if people vote, and that you've been trying to block that vote your entire career. Yeah. But finally, we get to the point, the last part of his statement that I think is the most important. He says, This is a solution in search of a problem. So you don't think there's any corruption problem at all in Washington? You, no one agrees with you. I mean, Every single poll ranges from 82 to 93% saying there's a massive corruption problem in Washington and it needs to be addressed. Now the reason Mitch McConnell says that because he is the single most corrupt person in Washington and probably the single most corrupt person of my lifetime. Now it's not to say that he's as personally corrupt as Donald Trump who runs two-bit scams and is a con artist or Duke Cunningham. By the way, these are all Republicans who went to prison for his corruption, etc, right? But on a systemic level that affects the whole country, no one defends corruption as much as Mitch McConnell does. He is the head of the swamp. So he is worse in that sense than Donald Trump. He is more corrupt, he's more the swamp. So if you are looking for patient zero in why Washington is a disgusting, corrupt cesspool, it is Mitch McConnell.
1: So in 1998, the tobacco companies had just settled a massive set of lawsuits brought by attorneys general all around the country. McCain was working on a bill in Congress that would make the settlement even tougher. It would raise the price of cigarettes to pay for anti-smoking programs, and it would make the tobacco companies reduce the rate of teen smoking. And if the rates didn't drop quickly enough, the
8: companies would have to pay big fines. This was a shot. This was a shot to do something that literally could save millions of lives. This is Matt Myers of the
1: Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. He worked directly with McCain on the bill. The bill actually passed out of committee with a bipartisan vote of 19 to 1. That's how popular it was. McConnell came out against it.
4: We know, of course, that only 2% of smokers are teenagers. We wish they would not engage in this habit, and we ought to do everything we can to deter that behavior. But this bill is about big government, and big spending, and big taxes.
1: The industry launched a massive ad campaign to defeat the McCain bill. Now the politicians in Washington are voting to destroy our way of life. They argued that raising the price of cigarettes to pay for public health was really just a
3: tax on smokers. That's not right. Contact your senators now and tell them you oppose the McCain tobacco tax.
1: Did you ever have conversations with John McCain in this period about what it was like dealing with tobacco industry money and influence? Um, Almost every day. Here's Matt Myers again from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. What did he say?
8: Well, um, trying to think of the right emotion. He felt like he was in the fight of his life. And for him, for somebody who had gone through what he'd gone through, that's saying something.
5: It's really a question of whether we believe an industry should be allowed to lie to Congress and the American people and get away with it.
1: Here's McCain on the Senate floor.
5: Whether an industry should be able to target kids to addict them to a deadly product and get away with it. Whether an industry can pay billions of dollars in campaign contributions for protection against their misdeeds and get away with it.
1: When McCain's tobacco bill finally came up for a vote, it failed. McCain had
8: lost. It was a gut punch, and it was more of a gut punch than just you'd lost a contest. But that many of us truly believe that this legislation would save literally millions of lives over the next decade. It's losing that that is what really hurt. And then, after the loss, a story comes out. It was within a couple of days of the vote, if I remember correctly. um, We read in the newspaper. It was the Wall
1: Street Journal. And the story was about the kind of private conversation between senators
8: that the public almost never hears. Shortly before the vote, Mitch McConnell had gone into the Republican caucus and informed them that any member of Congress who was waffling, who was concerned that the vote would hurt them at their polls because the bill was popular, That he had a pledge from the tobacco companies that they would spend money in the districts of those members who voted no to ensure they didn't pay a political price. What did you think when you heard that? I thought it had moved beyond the line of brazenly trying to influence the process with campaign contributions to as close to an outright bribe as you could find. McConnell
1: said on C-SPAN that he did nothing wrong.
4: Uh, All I said was the obvious that tobacco companies uh, felt that their uh, business was going to be destroyed. In my state, we have 60,000 tobacco growers. I thought the bill was a horrible bill. And all I said to my colleagues was a statement of the obvious, which is the companies were going to continue to express themselves.
1: In other words, they were exercising their right to free speech by spending money.
9: I'm not going to go into a long diatribe about uh, about Jimmy Dore or other uh, people who are just not bright enough to understand the implications of having a Republican executive uh, in office in a Republican controlled Senate. Um, There's not going to be any legislation that gets passed over the next uh, two years, 18 months, two years, that is going to be um, particularly horrific. There there may be some uh, corporatist ones that get passed um, that uh, do so with a little fanfare that we may not uh, like, but there's not going to be any um, huge tax cuts for the wealthy again. There's not going to be a rollback of the ACA, although it will happen administratively in, in some sectors. Uh, there's not going to be cuts to Medicare. There's not going to be cuts to Social Security. There's not going to be Social Security privatization, however- What has happened in the Senate and will continue to happen in the Senate and at a pace that is um, even greater than it's been will be the wholesale monopolization of the far right of our judiciary for decades to come. Decades to come. If we are extremely lucky. The worst that will happen from the about the Supreme Court from now until uh, 2020 will be that a 70-some-odd-year-old conservative is replaced by a 45-year-old conservative. So that seat will not come up for uh, grabs for another 30 years. And if you look at the conservatives on the court, that majority of five will be there until... I am probably too old to speak into this microphone and be legible and understood. Um, Huge missed opportunity, obviously, with the uh, Garland thing. I mean, it wasn't, uh, you know, putting aside that Garland was not the pick that I would have chosen. But Kennedy and maybe Thomas is I would imagine Thomas is going to announce his resignation um, pretty soon. That would be my guess. Yeah, they're they're going to want to get him out of the way. Although McConnell may not, it certainly will not slow things down because it's you know nine months till an election, whatever it is. But uh, Roberts is probably going to be the next out, unless something uh, tragic happens and one of the four on the left side of the court, I guess the liberal side of the court, uh, has to resign. And and even these four are not you know. They are to the right of nearly everyone who sat on that court, uh, supposedly in the left seats 30 years ago. But nevertheless, the other aspect of the judiciary is not just the Supreme Court. It is the Federal Court of Appeals in various uh, districts, uh, circuits around the country. And Trump has filled these spots at a pace that It's completely unprecedented, at least in the last, I don't know, four or five presidents. So 30, 40 years at least. And they are as radical as maybe we've seen in the modern era. They are much more reminiscent of of justices that we would have seen in the 1890s, let's say, or the early 1900s who viewed such things as social security as um, unconstitutional. I mean, these people are extremely radical. They come in slightly different flavors. Some are, um, are convinced that we are now living in a full on socialistic uh, communistic state. Others uh, think that we're living in too profound uh, profane of a world and they're theocrats, but they're all extremely radical on the conservative end. And, What uh, Mitch McConnell has done is he got rid of the filibuster when it came to the Supreme Court justices. Completely predictable. Although some people thought it was equivalent to the moon falling in Lake Michigan. Completely predictable. And uh, Mitch McConnell also got rid of blue slips, which was a, a rule that basically said a senator from any given state could basically refuse to give their sign off for a judicial nominee in that circuit that includes their state and prevent a lot of justice uh, judges from sitting on that court. The Republicans use this throughout the Obama administration repeatedly kept a lot of a lot of um, judges off the court. McConnell, it no longer recognizes that practice. The latest um, reporting is that McConnell will now invoke a new nuclear option by reducing the amount of time for debate over district level judicial nominees from 30 hours to two. So one of the ways that Democrats have tried to slow McConnell's role here, and particularly since Chuck Schumer was basically told, I think, by his caucus, you got to stop making these deals that allow all of them to walk through. That they would require 30 hours of debate. And, you know, 30 hours of debate, it's not from this morning at 10 a.m. till tomorrow at 4 p.m. It is 30 hours in which the the Senate is in session. And on any given week, there may only be 30 hours of session time period. Probably, I don't know, maybe even less. And so this slows the pace in which judges can be confirmed. However, uh, if you change the rules, which uh, McConnell can do with a simple majority uh, vote. That will. Um, basically, just make it uh, the the path to confirming all these much easier. So. Um, this is going to be, um, you know. Highly problematic for my kids. (laughs) That's how long the impact of this is going to be.
10: fearing a progressive president coming out of the 2020 election, Mitch McConnell is apparently gearing up to once again stop anything from getting through the Senate. We have a video of him talking about his plans right
3: here.
4: So what I want you to know is this isn't just some you know, young woman from New York who just got elected to Congress. It's much broader than that. So I think we're gonna have a debate next year about what America ought to be like. And stay tuned, because all of us collectively are going to determine which direction we're going to take next year. If I'm still the majority leader of the Senate after next year, none of those things are going to pass the Senate. They won't even be voted on. So think of me as the grim reaper. (laughs) The guy who's going to make sure that socialism doesn't land on the president's
3: desk.
7: Well, yeah. uh, before we go on to his record breaking uh, hypocrisy, um, Mitch, mission accomplished. We already thought of you <laughs> as the Grim Reaper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, look at how Republicans don't care about voters at all. Like, yeah. Mitch McConnell, all he cares about is uh, his donors. Because which politician in their right mind would tell their voters, think of me as the Grim Reaper? Yeah. It's like the least popular thing you could possibly be, right? But he's like, who cares about the voters? (laughs) These plebeians? No, no, no. Hey, Koch brothers, right here, I'm gonna stop all things that might help average Americans, Medicare for All, Green New Deal. Hey. Health insurance companies. I'm the Grim Reaper. Give me money. Give me money. Give me money. It is
10: brazen. Yeah. Yeah. Even if the Democrats yet again win another election. I mean, you know, I, you have to go back quite a while to have them losing the popular vote. Uh, just presidential election after presidential election. They, they just won the midterm. So if you, you take control of the House in the midterms, then you get the president of your party the next time still. No. Don't care. Not interested in what the people are obviously looking for. Uh, I'm going to continue to obstruct. But you also mentioned the hypocrisy. So it was just like two weeks ago, he wrote an op-ed where he was talking about people being unfair to Donald Trump with their uh, investigations and, and things like that. And he said this new across-the-board obstruction is unfair to the president, and more importantly, to the American people, who I love. Mm. It's mindless, undiscriminating obstruction for the sake of obstruction. <laughs>
7: what he just promised you he yeah. would do on tape, you saw it for yourself. He goes on to say, <laughs> it's like they're a bunch of grim reapers. <laughs> <laughs> he did not say that last no. part, but he might as well. I mean, you heard him say, I'm going to obstruct everything. I don't care what it is. And just two weeks ago, he said, can you believe Democrats are obstructing everything? They don't care what it is. Mm-hmm they just don't care at all. Because one of the other things that Mitch McConnell relies on, other than the donors, is the corporate media. He's like, yeah. "Oh, I'm just gonna go to Washington, I'm a respected member of the establishment. And I'm a Republican, so I'll cry and I'll whine and I'll yell and I'll intimidate. And I'll tell the media, you better call it 50-50. Even though I broke the record on filibusters when Obama was president, And I blocked a Supreme Court justice for over a year, unheard of in American history. Then I'm gonna blame Democrats for doing something a lot less. And then I'm gonna do even worse if another Democrat's gonna, but you must call it 50-50. And the media in mass goes, yes, sir, absolutely, sir, 50-50. We can't tell, sir, who's doing the obstruction. You just told us. That you will block every single bill under a Democratic president, and that your nickname
11: should be Grim Reaper. But I can't tell who's doing the obstruction. <laughs> I'm gonna call it 50-50. It's not the first time. It's just the way it works. So remember at the, at the CNN town halls with Bernie, these last ones, they had the marathon of, of town halls. And Bernie Sanders came out and was talking about allowing people from prison to vote, and even the Boston bomber. And they said, "Oh, aren't you giving your opponents a, a political ad for you right now? And he said, I don't care. Um, I'm not sure when we're going to figure out that they're consistently giving political ads. Hey, Donald Trump comes up with nicknames. He has he has war room meetings about how can I come up with nicknames for my political opponents because that gets everybody right, jazzed up. This guy gave you a nickname for him. Call him the Grim Reaper every time. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, every time they mention him, call him the Grim Reaper. The self-proclaimed Grim Reaper of of the Senate. Uh, mitch mcconnell says this grim reaper grim reaper grim reaper i'm not making up childish names he did it himself in the next ad there should be a dark uh, a dark uh, a cloud that comes over him and he's got a black hood on his head the grim reaper mitch mcconnell the entire entire election if i'm here mm-hmm. i will be the grim reaper so say do you want the grim reaper party of health care are you about to die here comes the grim reaper mm-hmm. it's too easy he mm-hmm. keeps giving you ammunition and you won't Take it.
10: I'd like to hear, a, a, I'm the Grim
7: Reaper and I approve this message. <laughs> yeah, well look, let me tell you, some, what Jared said there is super powerful and better than what I was gonna say. So if, if the Democrats were strong, they would beat Mitch McConnell easily. So I was gonna say that one of the things he's opposed to and says that he will never allow a vote on is a $15 minimum wage. So he's saying, I'm the Grim Reaper of your wages. I will never let you, yeah. let them raise wa- your wages in Kentucky. And you run that ad and people are going to be mad. But Jer is right. And it's worse. If, if we don't have healthcare as a right in this country, and, and that's the current state we're in right now. 28 million uh, people don't have health insurance in this country. If your kid gets cancer,
11: it's a death sentence yeah. from the Grim Reaper. He says too much. I'm sorry, John. Uh, uh, Trump Something. says we're the party of health care. Mitch McConnell comes and says, please stop saying it because we don't have a plan. All of that is documented. We know it happened. And then so after they come forward and continue to say, hey, we don't have anything to do with health care, the Grim Reaper steps in and says, let's stop talking about it because we're trying to kill people. Yeah. It will be a direct quote. You don't even have to misconstrue what they're saying or give a political spin. They said it. Yeah. Remember the death panels? It said these Democrats are trying to kill you. He just said, I will kill you. Yeah.
7: yeah. So, guys, spread this video, man. Because unfortunately, the Democratic leadership is not very good at this. So just especially if you live in Kentucky or you know someone who lives in Kentucky, let them know what Mitch McConnell's up up to. He's up for re-election right now. And and he's gonna hurt your family's wages, health care, et cetera. He just announced it. So send this video to everybody that lives in Kentucky.
12: Mitch McConnell and John McCain are fighting over the McCain-Feingold bill. And Tom, just tell us what this bill would do. The biggest thing you need to know about this bill was that it banned
1: something called soft money. And so let me just quickly explain this term. Cue the explaining music. So first off, if you want to give money to someone who is running for office, there are rules about how much you can actually give them. At the time of McCain's bill, you or I could only give a candidate up to $1,000. That $1,000 was a hard limit. So they called that hard money. Mm -hmm. Unions and corporations could not give directly to a political candidate. That is illegal. They could form political action committees and give a candidate still only up to $5,000. That was it. But there's a loophole in the law wealthy people or corporations or unions, they could give unlimited amounts of money to the Democratic or Republican parties. The parties could then use that money for things like canvassing or door knocking or even ads that praised a candidate for something they had done. And all of that unlimited
12: money was soft money. And so if it passed, the McCain-Feingold bill would ban soft money, right? Right. Okay. No
1: more unlimited donations to the parties. Because McCain said people or corporations were essentially able to buy politicians with all that money. Mitch McConnell said banning soft money was a terrible idea, not just because he thought these donations were a First Amendment right, and he did think that, but because he said banning soft money would keep Republicans from winning elections
4: take away non-federal money. We wouldn't be in the majority in the House. We wouldn't be in the majority in the Senate. We wouldn't win the White House. So I can tell you this, hell's going to freeze over first before we get rid of soft money.
1: And year after year on the Senate floor, McConnell used Senate rules to keep McCain-Feingold from passing.
4: This is a stunningly stupid thing to do, my colleagues.
1: But then... In March of 2002, after about seven years of fighting, McConnell can no longer stop it.
8: On this vote, the ayes are 60, the nays are 40, and the bill is passed.
13: It's taken years, but the Senate votes to pass the McCain-Feingold bill. It goes next to the White House.
1: McCain-Feingold passes. President George W. Bush signs it. And for John McCain... It is this huge triumph.
5: We will eliminate hundreds of millions of dollars of unregulated soft money that has caused Americans to question the integrity of their elected representatives.
1: For Mitch McConnell, well, he says it's one of the worst days of his life, not just because this bill, which he despised, became law, but because of who supported it.
4: Here's what he says in his book. I found it nothing short of depressing that when it was finally enacted, it was under a Republican House and a Republican president.
1: Now, Mitch McConnell could have said at this point, you won, I lost, it's over. But he was not about to just lick his wounds and move on. Instead, he takes John McCain and this law to court.
4: It'll go to the Supreme Court. This is going to be one of the biggest cases of our, of our time.
5: Mitch
1: McConnell sends lawyers to file a lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of McCain Feingold. Remember, he argued that limiting how much money can be spent on elections or who can spend that money violates the First Amendment. He wanted this whole law declared unconstitutional and He really wanted to be the first guy to file a legal challenge, because if you do that, you get your name on the lawsuit. And so that the Supreme Court case would forever be known as McConnell versus Federal Election Commission.
12: And we can't get into Mitch McConnell's mind, but my question is, what is this actually all about? Right? Is this about ideology? Or is this about self-interest? I mean, it's a
1: complicated question because, yeah... It's impossible to get into the man's mind. No doubt he has spent, at this point, more than 15 years of his life fighting on this issue. He has said that it's a deeply held belief of his about the First Amendment and that spending money on politics is free speech. But, of course, as we heard, he also says it was about helping Republicans win elections. Still, putting his name on this lawsuit suggests to me... That this was not just about winning those elections, but also about winning the argument with John McCain. Who is right about money and politics? And in the end,
3: I have the opinions of the court to announce in number 02-1647, McConnell versus Federal Election Commission. The
1: Supreme Court decides in a five to four decision,
3: with two relatively minor exceptions, the entire statute is constitutional.
1: John McCain has won, and Mitch McConnell has lost. The ruling with his name forever on it just said that the law he hated was constitutional. As he writes in his book, he was, quote, distraught enough to want to spend a fair amount of time with my office door closed. He says he called John McCain to congratulate him, and that was that.
4: I'd taken the fight as far as I could, and it was time to move on. But
1: it was not the end of the story.
12: I was just going to say, I don't believe that.
1: So the truth is, he does not move on. His fight is going to become less public, but it gets a lot more effective. And here's how. So for campaign finance laws to work... Someone needs to enforce them. And McConnell says, why don't I pick who the enforcers are? So first, he takes on the FEC, which is the Federal Election Commission. It's kind of like the cops on the campaign finance beat. Someone breaks the rules. It's their job to step in and punish them. Now, each political party gets to pick three commissioners. And for the Republicans, McConnell had a lot of influence on those choices. And one of the guys he picked, Bradley Smith, had actually argued publicly that most of these laws, the laws he was now supposed to be enforcing, should be abolished. McConnell's office told us that he just wanted people on the FEC who, quote, share McConnell's commitment to robust and open political debate. John
5: McCain was furious. I guarantee you that unless we reform the FEC, they will... They will destroy this law.
1: And the second thing that Mitch McConnell does is he teams up with a conservative lawyer named Jim Bopp, who also wanted to get rid of McCain-Feingold.
4: This guy is tenacious, he's brilliant, and he wins.
1: They created an organization, they called it the James Madison Center for Free Speech, and it raised money from wealthy conservatives, like Betsy DeVos, who is now, of course, in President Trump's cabinet. And the purpose of this group was to keep fighting McCain Feingold in the courts. They funded lawsuit after lawsuit. Most of them you've probably never heard of. But there was one case. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. A case you probably have heard of. Citizens United.
0: I just want to chime in here for one minute to let you know that the podcast awards are back. I've, I've done this years in the past. You may even hear me say at the beginning of the show that this is an award-winning podcast in reference to the podcast awards. You might not have heard me mention it in a while. The fact is I forgot about it last year. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't realize. I forgot. It didn't happen. Uh, the podcast awards are back. It's happening right now and I need your help to nominate the show. It's super simple. It takes one bit of effort on your part and you're done with the whole process forever. In years past, we had to ask for you to nominate us like every day. It was a sort of a popularity contest in terms of how engaged an audience was, which was an okay idea, but it's easier now. So there's far less of an excuse to, to not engage. So all you do is you go to podcast You click the big button right in the middle, talking about nominating shows. You'll have to register so that they know you're a real person with an email address and all of that. And then you will be presented with the slate of categories Within which you can nominate one show per category. Best of the Left, very naturally, is in the politics and news category. So feel free to nominate any shows you like in any other category. And in politics and news, nominate Best of the Left. Submit your choices and you're all set. Again, that's podcastawards.com. And just to let you know why this is important, being nominated for an award like this and winning awards like this helps more people find the show. I have had people become volunteers who helped produce the show after finding the show on the podcast awards. Obviously, people have become donors and helped support the show in that way. So that's why I think this is important. Uh, We've won awards in the past. It's always nice, but it's really about... Presenting the show to more people and getting more people to listen to it, which helps everyone, helps the show, might even help the world. That's why I'm asking for like three minutes of your time to nominate the show. So thanks in advance for helping out.
14: He's been working on it since the nineties, basically. But him and the Federalist Society have been in lockstep this entire time, and like they're they're getting their way. Like they're they're just winning, and and the they're going to have installed these people who are going to be basically uh, legislating from the bench for decades to come.
9: I mean, uh, just like what what point um, do you think McConnell was? This a question of McConnell because certainly the Garland thing, right? Like, yeah, I I think that empty seat on the Supreme Court. Um, is one of the most underestimated reasons why Donald Trump is in the present.
14: Oh, yeah, right? totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, like, so this is what I wrote about, and I have the the cover of The New Republic. Uh, pick it up at your newsstand. Um, my <laughs> 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 um, so I wrote about McConnell. <laughs> and, uh... Um. Yeah, and he he sort of he sort of, he sort of says as much. But I I think you can look at how Donald Trump won, and on the one hand, he he genuinely convinced a bunch of people who don't normally vote for Republicans to come out and vote for him because he was out there saying every day like, "I'm going to fight for Social Security. We're going to get out of these wars we're in." He was out there talking like a non Republican, and McConnell was the one telling everyone reassuring everyone oh by the way he will govern like a republican meaning specifically he's going to appoint the judges we want
11: well
9: he was holding up a list yeah. trump was holding up a list trump. made by the heritage foundation and yeah. the federalist society yeah. that was basically like here's my one promise to you
14: yep and-, and
9: that was the indication right
14: yeah and that's how that's how you get a coalition together of like people who want to reject everything and then people who are like yeah all right you know he's he's gonna like the the evangelicals and the everyone else are that's like, i think that's it's it. the evangelicals.' They, i mean that's so how he mobilized got the yeah,
9: he mobilized he was able to mobilize the evangelicals despite the fact being the most profane yeah like example of humanity that you could imagine
11: what
14: um so that also like so M- mcconnell too he that uh him sort of in the background with Heritage and Federalist Society, like, uh, getting Trump on the same page on judges, it was also the signal to, like, all the Republican establishment, like, all right, I guess, like, we don't actually need to prevent this guy from getting the nomination. Like, we actually can just sort of sit back and see what happens. And, like, McConnell's classic move is to sit back and see what happens. It was, like, after the, uh, the Access Hollywood tape. People are rushing to get statements out rejecting Trump. And McConnell's just like, let's see how this plays out. He does it all the time. He just, like, doesn't... Doesn't talk until he sees how the situation is going to play out.
9: I am That's- amazed at how much the Democrats and the the media failed to hold Ryan and McConnell to account mm-hmm. for any part of this. I know, yeah, crap show. I know, and McConnell just seems to me to be uniquely devoid of shame. Oh yeah, like the like his statements that he came out the other day saying like Obama should have done more to stop the Russians from interfering in the election. Yeah, that's stunning. Just to put that remind people why that's so stunning. So
14: the um the um, the intelligence agencies are saying like well Russia keeps hacking uh these emails and is trying to it is trying to basically interfere in the election to 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 hurt Hillary Clinton. Um,
9: and they had tested, like, their ability to get into voter rolls. Too, yeah, they had been, they had been testing,
14: they had been just been sort of trying everything. It was like a kitchen sink, like, let's just sort of mess around in all these little edges around the election. And, like, so they, you know, they, they, they brief Congress and the, they brief the leaders of Congress and Obama and the, um, as, like, Let's like, let's all put out a statement condemning Russia for doing this just to, so that like people know that it's going on. And and McConnell's like, no, <laughs> like he's like, I'm not going to I'm not signing on to any joint statement with you. um I think it was, his sticking point was like, you're not allowed to say that they want to help Trump win. Like, I'll be like, eh, Russia, don't interfere. But you're not allowed to actually tell the truth about what's happening. So he so he refuses. He refuses to sort of be the Republican signing on to the statement condemning Russian interference.
9: So he, at that point is on board or is that that's all part of his, like, I'm going to see how this shakes out. As long as I don't have to take any position that will, will like sort of commit me to being on any side of this ledger. Yeah. Cause he's worried in Kentucky, right? Theoretically. Uh, of of like a primary at one point too. Yeah, isn't yeah. He? I
14: mean, a couple of years ago, he almost he actually in in the end he won handily, but he was so unliked by the base that you know there was a lot of energy around finding a, someone to primary him.
9: There was a, people forget that McConnell. Like, if you listen to Mark Levin or any of those yeah. people on right wing radio
14: at that time, McConnell was demonized. Yeah. By them. Oh yeah. Big yeah. time. Yeah. And it's, it's I mean it's always been crazy uh, because he's. You know, he's by far the most effective Republican politician, um, of the modern era. Like, in terms of achieving conservative ends and in terms of consolidating Republican power, I don't think you can point to anyone else who's been as effective as him, but they, they hate him because they know he's not actually in his heart a true believing conservative. Um, he, you know, he, he began his career basically as a quasi Rockefeller Republican, um, which I sort of have come to believe was purely strategic and not out of any sort of actual belief in in like moderation because you know it was the, it was the 60s and 70s and you could still sort of believe that was the way forward for but the, the the day reagan gets elected he's suddenly he's a reagan conservative and they know they know he doesn't actually believe it he was never like one of the sort of young fire-breathing ultra right-wingers um but so then, they you know they didn't trust him. But it was also this thing where I think during the Obama years they were just so mad that Obama was in office that any Republican who was in office was like blamed for not for allowing that to happen. Right. <laughs> so, so like McConnell is stymieing Obama at every turn. But it's still like you let this man be president. Like why aren't you doing right? Why aren't that? you arresting him <laughs> like, for being a non-American citizen? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
10: Mitch McConnell is a raging hypocrite, but he's okay with that, as he'll make clear in a video we're about to show you. you now, bear in mind, back just a couple of years ago, uh, Merrick Garland was nominated to the Supreme Court during the last year of Barack Obama's second term, and uh, Mitch McConnell said, We don't confirm people in the last year. Well, now he's got a Republican president. What does he think about that situation in the near future? Here's what he said.
8: The Supreme
3: Court does this
4: time next year. Oh, we'd fill it. Yeah, you know, the reason I started with the judges, as important as all these other things are that we're talking about, I mean, if you want to have a long-lasting, positive impact on the country, everything else changes. You know, I I remember during the tax bill, there were people agonizing over whether one part of the tax bill was permanent or not. I said, look, the only way the tax bill is permanent depends upon the next election. The next election because people have different views about taxes and the two parties and approach it differently when they get in power. What can't be undone is a lifetime appointment to a young man or woman who believes in the quaint notion that the job of the judge is to follow the law. So that's the most important thing we've done for the country, which cannot be undone.
10: Yeah, it's not technically true. They can be impeached, but apparently that will never, ever happen, no matter how horrible they are.
7: Yeah, so uh, this is the day that uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans stopped trying, because they realized mainstream media is asleep. It doesn't matter. We could be as hypocritical as we want, and we could be as brazen as we want and just tell them. So you see that smile he had? We'd fill it. So look, in case you don't know, just real quick, one more time, Merrick Garland uh, appointed in March of 2016 when Obama's president. Presidents get to appoint Supreme Court justices. McConnell said. Well, you are not even going to get a hearing. For 293 days, you would not allow a hearing. And why? He said, Oh, well, in the last year of a presidency, obviously you can't fill it because then the next president should decide. So they asked him a question here. If you said in the last year you can't fill a position, and he smiles and goes, Oh, no, we'd fill it. And then his spokesperson put out a statement saying, They asked him, What's the difference? He said, Oh, well, last time we controlled the Senate, so we didn't want his appointment to go through, and now we have a Republican president and a Republican controlling the Senate, so we let the appointment through. What that is is rubbing your face in it, going, yeah, we're hypocrites. What are you gonna do about it? Well, the Democrats aren't gonna do anything about it. They roll over every time. They're still having a discussion about whether they should end the filibuster when we use it to our advantage in every conceivable way, and they're still having a debate over it, idiots. And the mainstream media will call everything even. So what difference does it make? I can tell you all day long that I'm a hypocrite. And they'll still say, "Oh well, it's even, I can't tell who's obstructing, I can't tell. Um, so when you should actually look into doing your job. Now they'll say, Jake, that's not fair, we stated his uh, quotes, we gave the quotes. No, you're also supposed to give context. And so when McConnell next time says something, you should give the context of he's a well known liar and a well known hypocrite. Oh, You can't say that, what do you mean I can't say that, he just told you he was a liar. He told, he said during the Obama years. Oh, there's a rule that you can't fill a Supreme Court vacancy in the last year of a presidency. Now he says there is no such rule that he made it up because for a sheer power grab. But what do you call that if you don't call it a liar and a hypocrite? So when the media does not call them those things, understand they're not, if they, they'll hide behind, I'm doing my job. No, your job is not to be neutral to the facts. It's to be objective about the facts. So if you call it even, You've helped Mitch McConnell lie. That's the reality of it.
12: We need to go back to the first time many people heard of Mitch McConnell. It was six years before Trump got elected during an interview in 2010.
3: Senator Mitch McConnell did an interview
7: with National Journal In it, he said, quote, The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president.
4: Mitch McConnell says our goal, our priority politically, make this man a one-term president. How do you go? What about governing? Forget
5: it. I mean, the next two years, there isn't going to be any government.
2: Mitch McConnell says the one-term president quote was taken out of context, that he went on to say, I don't want the president to fail, I want him to change. Basically, that if Obama's views on things got closer to McConnell's, he would be willing to do business with him.
12: But for most of Obama's presidency, McConnell did not do business with Obama. He and other members of his party did everything they could to block things like Obamacare and to block many of Obama's nominations to the federal court.
2: And probably McConnell's most notable act of obstructionism was after Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died. And McConnell refused to hold a vote on Obama's nomination to fill the seat. Merrick Garland. Dahlia Lithwick covers the courts for Slate.
13: He announced within hours of Justice Scalia's death in February 2016 that no one was going to fill that seat. It didn't matter who the person was. People thought that was audacious. People thought it was shocking. For for a moment, everybody said, This has never been done before. This can't happen. And he just stuck to it. And people will just accede to it over time. And that's exactly what happened. If you believe that this is a fight to the death, all the norms fall away and then see if people can live with that. And I think that that's been Mitch McConnell's M.O. long before they swore Donald Trump in. The
12: thing is, Mitch McConnell's Supreme Court move ended up being very good for Donald Trump. Back in 2016, when some Republicans were worried Trump wasn't conservative enough. This, according to Al Cross, who has covered Mitch McConnell for decades and has been our guiding hand throughout this series.
3: There was a considerable reluctance among evangelicals and religiously oriented conservatives to accept this guy, this objectionable person, As the nominee of the Republican Party, once they saw there was policy to be accomplished through that election, they said fine.
12: So I asked Al how instrumental he thought that was to getting Trump elected.
3: He wouldn't have been elected without it.
2: Once elected, one of the first things President Trump did, not even two weeks after the inauguration, was nominate a conservative justice to the open Supreme Court seat. Neil Gorsuch.
5: We are gathered here today for a truly momentous occasion in our democracy. The swearing-in of a United States Supreme Court justice.
2: At the swearing-in ceremony, Trump was sure to acknowledge McConnell.
5: Today, I especially want to express our gratitude to Senator Mitch McConnell for all that he did to make this achievement
12: possible. So thank you, Mitch. Mitch McConnell had gotten what he wanted, a Republican president, a conservative Supreme Court justice. But it became clear pretty quickly that the Donald Trump of the campaign had not gone away.
2: And as one of the most powerful people in the country, Mitch McConnell was going to be expected to answer the question. If Donald Trump crosses a line, will you stand up to him?
12: And that was never more pressing than after Charlottesville.
2: It was August 2017. President Trump said there were very fine people on both sides of a white supremacist rally. And Mitch McConnell did not criticize Trump the way he did on book tour. He did not say, this needs to stop.
12: What he did do was issue a statement, quote... There are no good neo-Nazis, and those who espouse their views are not supporters of American ideals and freedoms. The statement rebukes Trump's remarks, but does not have Trump's name in it. It doesn't even mention the president.
2: We specifically asked Mitch McConnell why he did not mention the president, and he did not answer why. He said, messages of hate and bigotry are not welcome in Kentucky and should not be welcome anywhere in America.
12: The fact that Mitch McConnell is up for re-election in 2020, Al Cross says, is the most important thing to understanding McConnell's relationship with Donald Trump.
2: Because in Kentucky, Donald Trump has an approval rating around 55 percent. Mitch McConnell's approval rating is around 36 percent, according to a morning consult poll back in April.
3: He certainly has, as his prime directive right now, getting re-elected in Kentucky. And because Donald Trump is very popular in Kentucky, that means not getting too much distance between himself and Donald Trump.
12: Alcross says one way McConnell has been able to keep winning in Kentucky despite his unpopularity is that he adapts to where he sees the party is going. And right now, in Kentucky, at least, the party is going with Donald Trump.
2: Mitch McConnell himself likes to say, if you don't win, you have to go home. You don't get to make a difference. Here's ProPublica journalist Alec McGillis, who wrote a book about McConnell.
3: For Mitch McConnell, winning is all. At the end of the day, it is all about what you can do to set yourself up to win the next time. And that's, of course, true to some degree of all politicians, all candidates. But it's more true of him than anyone.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Embedded explaining McConnell's love of fundraising. The David Pacman Show looked at just one example of McConnell's conflict of interest regarding voting machine companies. The Young Turks discussed McConnell's longtime love of suppressing voters. Embedded told the story of how McConnell worked tirelessly to protect tobacco companies and contribute to the deaths of millions of Americans. The Majority Report explained McConnell's strategy to pack the courts for a generation. The Young Turks highlighted, that McConnell proudly calls himself the Grim Reaper and points out the obvious fact that Democrats should hang it around his neck. Embedded told the story of McConnell's personal crusade to keep as much money in politics as possible. The Majority Report highlighted the special level of shamelessness and effectiveness McConnell has brought to the Republican table. The Young Turks point to just the most profound example of McConnell's shamelessness regarding the Supreme Court. And finally, we just heard Embedded connect the dots between McConnell's maneuvering and Trump's election. Members this week will hear some additional material on McConnell's strategically friendly relationship with Trump, a very interesting moment of McConnell debating the corruption of the Senate, and the cynicism or possible lies coming from anyone who thinks that McConnell can be shamed into doing the right thing. I'm looking at you, Joe Biden. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash Left. and now we'll hear from you.
13: Heather from Texas. Um, I just got through listening to your episode on the rise of Christian nationalism, and I had some comments about that, uh, just some thoughts. I I wouldn't really say that we have a rise of Christian nationalism. I think it's always been there. I, I guess it's just become more vocal. People are a lot more comfortable publicly announcing these kind of thoughts and opinions, whereas before maybe they would have not felt the need to. I mean, with Christianity, it's almost a foundation to feel oppressed. Like they, I wouldn't say they like it, but it's almost like they thrive in it. They connect more to the Christian stories of oppression when they themselves feel like they are being oppressed. I'm not entirely sure that it's something that can be fixed by addressing each individual form of oppression that they, that they come up with. Because, I mean, first it was racial, like, they, they felt like the Christianity was being oppressed by forcing these good white Christians to have to intermingle with people of other races. Now it's becoming something about, uh, you know, queer and gay people. Um, they feel like they're being oppressed. Or they feel like they're being oppressed because they can't force their religion on other people. Again, that, to, to an outsider, that all seems very kind of comical and, and nonsensical. But either way, once you kind of get them past one oppression, they're going to latch on to something else. You know, anything. It, it really could be anything. Whatever makes them feel most oppressed. So I honestly think it's going to have to come from reshaping how many Christians feel about their on the spirituality or their religion, and getting get people away from that that feeling like they have to be oppressed or enjoying that sense of oppression. I really don't understand it, and I'm sure it's not just related to Christians. I'm sure there are other religions that have this issue as well, but I'm most familiar with Christianity and, and how that has played out. You know, there's been many times in my life where I've come face-to-face with this, I even remember having a conversation with one of my best friends in high school where she was talking about Family Guy and she loved when Family Guy would make fun of everybody else but then she felt like it was really crossing a line making fun of Jesus and and I tried to point out to her like, you I mean, you just said, you're okay with everybody else. If everyone else can get poked fun at, you can get poked fun at too. But that felt too much to her, that felt very personal to her. So. I don't, know. I don't know how we can kind of separate that, where we can have Christians, more Christians than, than what we have right now, being comfortable talking about their religious identity and the boundaries of, of where they fit in society with that religious identity. But I think it's something worth exploring, um, because I know many Christians who are good people, uh, very tolerant people who don't have an issue with this, I would love to explore more what the difference is. What makes some people thrive on that oppression, and which people are okay with just minding their own business? That might be something that, uh, if you've already done a podcast on, I would love to try to to find. Again, I've just got done watching, listening to your your episode, so I'll go and, and see if I can find something else where you've maybe talked about this some more. Shout out to the other Heather in the voicemails. Hey. Um, As always, I I love your I love your podcast. Uh, I love what you do. Uh, Thank you so much and uh, keep doing the good work.
15: Hey, Jay, this is Annie from Alabama. Now Annie from Florida just moved. So happy to be voting in a purple district where my vote actually matters. Um, I have a couple thoughts today on your episode about the Christian right. It really resonated with my experience because that's how I grew up in an extremely conservative, extremely political family and, and church where you just didn't question things. And if you were conservative, you're a Christian. If you were a liberal, you were a hedonist, atheist. And that's just that is how it went. You didn't question why things were done. It's just how they were done. And growing up in that church, being indoctrinated in that way, and then falling out of Christianity, but still attending the Christian university where I had to study theology. It's given me a really interesting perspective on it. And I've developed this, this kind of theory that I quite inelegantly call the persecution boner. This is the craving that all of these evangelicals have for persecution, like the get off on it. In the scriptures, if you read... There's quite a few places in the New Testament where Jesus says things like, you will suffer for my name's sake. Uh, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute persecute you. That's in Matthew 5. In Corinthians, it says, like, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus's sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh, which is delightful. But the context matters back then if you were following this dude that the roman government the jewish government the sanhedrin thought was a blasphemer and thought was a rabble rouser you were very much in danger a lot of those early christians died a lot of them were dumped in boiling oil or crucified or stoned to death you know you know super fun activities for the whole family actually and the whole point that these early church members were talking about was if you are actually living like Jesus and preaching his word, people are not going to like you. But nowadays it's totally different. Jesus is the mainstream in America. You're like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church on Sunday. And everybody's going to be like, okay, cool, fine, whatever. So does my cousin. Like, it's It's cool. You're more likely to be surrounded by Christians than not. But how do they wrap their mind around this because most Christians nowadays read the Bible very shallowly. They apply no context and they apply directly to their lives. As if it was written to them. So they think, damn, I'm not being persecuted. What am I doing wrong? If I was doing it right, I'd have to get persecution. So they push and they push and they push. And they're more and more obnoxious until someone says, Hey dude, can you back off? And they're like, ah, a persecution? I'm being persecuted. Which is why they're so masochistic about it. They invite this persecution while complaining bitterly about it and trying to outlaw it. Because they know, I mean, they think that if they're getting persecuted, that that means they're doing right. But they don't even consider the fact that they're hurting their own ministry and their own lives. And the people around them are getting hurt. To me, the true persecuted Christian would be a Christian who says, wait a minute, guys. Why are we not providing healthcare to transgender people when they're calling an ambulance? I thought Jesus said to to heal the sick. I thought Jesus healed the sick. You know, like there's this line. There, I mean, there's this this parable he told about the sheep and the goats, where he was like, hey, um, you know, if you saw people hungry and didn't feed them, if you saw people who needed clothes and did not clothe them, if you you saw the sick and didn't, and didn't heal them, if you saw people in prison and did not visit and comfort them, then I don't know you. Get out of my sight, right? Quite literally, that's Judgment Day. A Christian who says, hey, maybe we shouldn't be locking children up in cages, I don't know, just a thought, they'd be excommunicated immediately. That is persecution. That is going against the grain for what you know is right. But most of these Christians aren't brave enough to do it, where they're not wise enough to see through the nonsense. And then they see any kind of backlash against them for being bad people. It's godly persecution. And it's just, it's, it's this weird, it's this weird confirmation bias. Where if you tell them they're doing good, they'll believe they're doing good. If you tell them they're doing bad, they see that as proof that they're doing good. There's nothing you can do to convince them. It's a chip away and hopefully they'll come to that realization themselves. Thank you for this episode, Jay. It was extremely interesting. To listen to, given my background, I appreciate everything you do. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I heard what you said about people dropping off because of their mental health. And I'll be honest, I've taken, I've, I've seen the titles of some episodes and said, you know what? I'm going to skip that. Just, just for right now, can't do it. But I appreciate you pushing through there to, to give us the option to listen no matter what the, what the, um, subject matter is. So y'all hang in there. You're doing great work. Talk to y'all next time.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I definitely have thoughts in response to the voicemails we just heard and uh, bringing in some other things. I just don't have time for them today. Come back next week, and I think this conversation will be continuing for sure. And if you have thoughts, please call them in. I just want to leave you with this this thought on today's topic of Mitch McConnell. Hopefully that conversation will not continue uh, for very long because who wants to spend a lot of time talking about Mitch McConnell? I just wanted to connect these dots. In the show, we heard that he has this bizarre attraction to fundraising Pretty much everyone universally in Congress despises fundraising. He seems to love it. And then the other dot is that there are times, especially highlighted with the tobacco companies, that it really seemed like Mitch was going after the funders way more than they were trying to influence him. And the explanation of that is pretty clear. It's very simple, but just to connect the dots, the only way that begging for money would not disgust a person is when it's not begging it's extortion because that's when the power dynamics change and the asker is actually the one in control rather than what we generally think of as the giver or the donor we think of the donors pulling the strings of the politicians with mitch mcconnell it is clearly the other way around and that's why he likes it so much now, once again, if you'd like to leave comments, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music you used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen so coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every tuesday and friday thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com